All right, well, good morning, Friendship family. I'm glad to see you today. Uh, I thought it was very interesting that AP, Andrew Poston, decided to sing the song Sea of Victory uh, this weekend after my team experienced the agony of defeat last week. But I believe the best about Andrew that he just wanted to encourage me in the victory we have in Christ, right? That's, that's right. So, uh, you know, life goes on. It was fun. Uh, it was a fun season for my team. I, I realized, I was like, man, I had a, a month and a half more football than I've had in my life, and I got to watch my team play four more games than usual. So, it's a good season. I'm excited for them. Um, it was fun to watch the team grow, like individually, and then as a unit, as a team, and the way they grew and matured and experienced the heights of victory. And as a segue, that's exactly what the year 2022 is for our church, the year of discipleship, this year where I hope to see all of us individually and corporately grow and experience new heights in our walk with the Lord. And it all goes back to, at the very center of it, the Word of God. And so we're in this uh, 52-week um, journey through the Bible, through our reading plan, the F260 Bible reading plan. If you're not engaged with us, I want to encourage you to do so. We have Bible reading plans over at our Next Steps area. Um, two chapters a day, five days a week. You can jump in right where we're at. We're at week number eight this week. And then every Sunday what we're doing is we're going through this 52-week journey through the scripture, the story of God called The Word. And so we're actually in The Word week number eight. It's comprised of multiple series. We're in a series called Promised Land. And uh, we're in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. The word Exodus literally means exit or departure. So as we're in this book and getting further into it, uh, what we see is the story of God's people coming out of slavery in Egypt by the hand of God. And there is this character in the story named Pharaoh. He's the king of Egypt, and he's trying to destroy Israel. He's trying to suppress them, and so he puts them into slavery. But God raises up a deliverer, a man by the name of Moses. And last week, what we saw was there was this confrontation between God and Pharaoh. God wanting his people to go, to be freed, so he could take them into the promised land and Yet Pharaoh fought against that, and so God delivers his people through a sacrifice, through the blood of the Passover lamb. And then in, if you've been reading along, um, what you see in chapters 13, 14, 15 of Exodus is God further delivers his people through the Red Sea as Pharaoh kind of changes his mind and him and his army pursue the nation of Israel as they're leaving. God delivers his people through the Red Sea and defeats God's enemies. And chapter 15 of Exodus is an incredible chapter. It's not in our reading plan, but it's the Song of Moses. So essentially what happens is God delivers his people. They come out the other side of the Red Sea and they burst out in the song. It's their victory song about who God is and what he has done. And it's an incredible chapter you ought to read. But then as we make our way into Exodus 16, 17, 18, what we see is Israel makes its way into the wilderness. So God has delivered them out of slavery, but they're not quite yet where they want to be in the promised land. And so they're, they're in this middle ground called the wilderness. And we all, uh, we all understand this in life. Like we're maybe not where we used to be, but we're not quite where we want to be. We're in this middle ground of wilderness. And what we see from the people of Israel in this journey is that they grumble and they complain and they're just mad at Moses because uh, man, the food was way better in Egypt, and now we're stuck out here in the wilderness going hungry, and we're thirsty, and why did you bring us out here to die? And, and I, I found this really interesting verse that I think is such a key verse that I just want to point out to you as we jump in here. Exodus 16, verse 8, 
people are complaining to Moses and Aaron and and Moses, who was at first taking this personally, turns around and says, well, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And so Moses comes to this realization that, that when the people of God are, are grumbling about their circumstance, about their provision, it's, they're not grumbling against people. They're ultimately grumbling against the Lord. And that like hit me smack in the face that, you know, when we grumble in our life because of our circumstance, we're having to deal with this situation or this individual, what we're doing is we're grumbling against the Lord who, is, who has put us in this place. And so here we have the people of Israel in the wilderness. God um, miraculously feeds them through bread from heaven and water from the rock. And God ultimately wants them to know that he is the Lord. He wants them to see his power, but he also wants to test their hearts. He wants to see, he says in, in Exodus 16, verse 4, he says, I want to see whether they will walk in my law or not. Like, are they just externally obedient or is this in their heart to actually obey me? And so today we enter into the second half of the book of Exodus. Really from chapters 19 through the end of the book, they come to Mount Sinai. And if you remember earlier in our study, um, this was called, God called this the mountain of God. And he's fulfilling this uh, prophecy where he said, you and the people are going to worship here at this mountain. And so they're at Mount Sinai and they'll be here for the rest of the book of Exodus. And this is where God comes down and he gives the people through Moses the Ten Commandments. And so we're going to talk about the Ten Commandments today. And I've just got to say from the start, y'all, I struggled with this sermon, like pulling it all together. There's so much in here and so much I'd like to talk about. Uh, in fact, last year, 2021, I had I'd written down that I wanted to do a series on the Ten Commandments and walk through the Ten Commandments because um, I, I see that we generally either overemphasize or underemphasize the Ten Commandments. Either we overemphasize it where it's like we got to plaster these things all over the place and in our schools and everywhere. It's so important, which I think is an overemphasis. But then there's this underemphasis where we would say, well, they're not really important for today. We're under grace, not under law. Those are archaic. That's Old Testament. We don't live in that time anymore. So let's just throw them out the window. I think that's an underemphasis. And so my hope today is that as we kind of talk about the law, and y'all, when, when we hear the word law, we go, we go like cringe, right? Law and order, and it's like you think about those 50 shows, law and order on TV. Uh, I don't, you just, you bad things come when you think about the law and commandments. And, and so I hope that this, this sermon will kind of give us some perspective and to see the law and the Ten Commandments and the light that I think God wants us to in this age. And so today's title is God's Gracious Law. God's Gracious Law. And I love that, just that simple title because typically we pit the law of God against the grace of God. As if God used to be in the Old Testament just a God of law and judgment. And now he's a God of grace and he's all about love. No, no, no. He's been about both of those things from the beginning. It is who he is. And we're going to explore that today. God's Gracious Law. So Ten Commandments come in Exodus chapter 20. The Ten Commandments are also known as the Decalogue. The Decalogue, two Greek words combined, deca, which means ten, or, you know, decade. And then log comes from logos, which means word. So ten words, ten commands from God. Now, I know you all don't like this phrase, but we're going to have a pop quiz today. All right? God likes to test his people, so I'm going to test you all. All right? But this is like a group project. 
You can talk out loud. You can talk to your neighbor. Here's what I want to do. Um, someone is already jumping in with us. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm gonna, here's the question. There's one question, and y'all can work together on this. What are the Ten Commandments? I didn't test myself on this because I was afraid I would fail, and I didn't want to confess that to you. But so what are the Ten Commandments? Here's what I want you to do. I want, I'm going to solicit your input. I want you to, if you think of one, I want you to say it out. And then we're going to go and read until we, we get all ten of those commandments, all right? And then we'll move on from there. So who's first? Thou shalt not kill. Shall not kill. All right. On the tip of your tongue. Okay, so let's, let's, go, to, <laughs> let's go to number She's had a bad week, y'all. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Do not murder. Number six, verse 13. (laughs) You shall not murder. All right. So, um, and the the purpose behind this, God is a God of life. He is the life giver. And every person he's created, he's created or made them in his own image and his likeness. And so every life is valuable. Do not murder. All right. Good, good. Here, here's what I'm going to do. I didn't do this in the first service. I'm going to mark this down to make sure I get all these, all right? So number six. Who's got another one? Do not steal. All right, I'll come back to you, Ronnie. Uh, Do not steal. Good job. Number eight, which is in verse 15. Verse 15 says, you shall not steal. Okay, short and to the point. You shall not steal. So what's that all about? Well, stealing is taking, obviously, what doesn't belong to you. And so God has created us. His character is it. He's a God of, of uh, giving. He's a God of generosity. And so he gives us things and he calls us to be stewards, to care for the things that he has put into our possession. He calls us to be giving and to share with others. And so this violates his character. Do not steal. All right, Ronnie, you got one? No other gods before me, all right? So number one, you win the big prize. Ding, 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 I'll give you a sticker afterwards. Number one, no other gods before me. Verse number three, which says this, you shall have no other gods before me. And so essentially what God says here is, I don't want you to have any other loves. No other loves that are before me or that come before me. I wanna be your one and only. I want your affection, your devotion to be Uh, I want to be the object of your affection and your devotion. And I like the way that Martin Luther, the old reformer, said it is to have a God is to trust and believe in that one with your whole heart. You lay hold of him when your heart grasps him and clings to him. No other gods before me, all right? So number one, good. Who's got another one? Honor your father and mother, okay? Number five, is in verse number 12, which simply reads, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. If you don't honor them, they are gonna cut your days short. Okay, that's that's my translation. Verse number uh, 12. So why is this important to God, to honor your father and mother? It's because authority is important, important to God, because God is the ultimate authority. Authority comes from him and it represents him. And so he says, honor your father and your mother. All right, so that was number five. Who's got another one? Remember the Sabbath. Sabbath, Number four, all right, found in verse number uh, eight through 11. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it 
you should not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, so this is a pattern, God and creation, in six days he made heaven and earth, the sea, all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. All right, so it's a time of rest. And what's interesting is, as I was going through my, my reading in chapter 16, it's the first time you see this really established by God when he's giving the bread from heaven. He, he says, hey, six days you're going to gather bread. On day number six, you're going to gather enough for two days because on the seventh day, you're going to rest. You're not going to go gather bread. And so honor the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day. All right. Uh, we've got one, two, three, four, five more. We're halfway there. Who's got another one? What is it? Not using the Lord's name in vain. Okay, so number three. Do not take the Lord's name in vain, which is in verse number seven. It says this, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And this is a big one that we, I think, skip over because we, we might go, well, you know what? I don't curse and use God's name when I curse um, or curse at all, hopefully, right? Um, and, that's, and certainly you ought not to use his name when you speak. Use it in vain, but it's so much bigger than that. To take his name is literally to, to represent him. And I, I think of, you know, when my wife and I got married, Annette, her maiden name was Smith, and she took on my name. She became a Tate, and from that point on, she represents me and my family, and, and our kids represent um, the Tate family. That's their name. And so we, when we enter into a relationship with God, we take on his name. That's why we're called Christians, little Christs. And so he says, if you're going to take my name, don't take my name and live in such a way that you, you dishonor who I am. Live a life that is worthy of my name. And this is why when we end the service this year, as we're giving our benediction, Colossians 3, 16 and 17, talks about let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And it goes on to say, hey, whatever you do, everything you do in word and in deed, do all, do you know how it says to do it? In the name of the Lord Jesus. You do it in his name because every word you speak, every action you commit represents his name. And so listen, don't take my name in vain. And there's so much significance to the name of God throughout Scripture and so many names to try to capture all that he is. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. All right, good. Four more. Somebody said don't covet. All right, so let's go there. Number, where are we? Number 10, the last one. Verse number 17 says this, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And you're like, sweet, there's things I covet that don't fit that list. All right, perfect. Uh, to covet means to desire something that isn't yours. And he, he, he kind of covers it. Places and, and people and property don't, don't have this desire for something that God hasn't given you. And Colossians 3 goes on to say later on in the New Testament that covetousness is idolatry. You're making an idol when you're desiring created things over the creator who gives. And so do not covet. Okay, so knocked off number 10. What else we got? A few more. What's that? 
do not commit adultery. All right, so number seven, verse number 14, you shall not commit adultery. And behind this is God's, the way that God holds up this human institution of marriage, which is sacred. It's the first institution that God instituted back in the garden. And he goes on in the New Testament even to compare the relationship between himself and his people, uh, and the, the church, uh, between the church and Christ. It's a, it's a picture of our relationship with God, that he is our husband, we are the bride. And this is why in the, the Old Testament, um, when God talks about the worst sin against him, he compare, compares it to spiritual adultery. So do not commit adultery. All right, we've got one, two more, two more. Don't bear false witness. All right, number nine, which is in verse number 16, or no lying is another way to say that. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So what's the big deal there? Well, God is a God of truth. He is a truth teller, a truth giver. Lies and false witness contradict, again, his character and who he is. And when you see the story in the scripture, we see that the devil is called the father of Lies, And so even at the root of sin is this idea of, of lies against the truth of God. So do not bear false witness, no lying. All right, so we got one more. This one's kind of a tricky one that kind of always sneaks by me. Anybody know what it is? No idols, all right? Number two, and this one kind of flows right out of number one, no other gods before me. Second one, starting in verse, uh, we're going to verses four to six, no idols. So Verse number four, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that's in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." And so no idols, God, he says it right here. He's a jealous God. He wants all of our attention and our affection and everything else should fall under, under him. And so there you go. Good job. Give, you, give, y'all, give yourselves a round of applause. Good job. Um, ten commandments. Um, so I want to I kind of jump forward here to the New Testament, Christ's completion and I just want to connect the dots here for a moment, and then I'm going to spend more time this morning talking about the application. Like, what do we do with the law? What do we do with the Ten Commandments today? But I want us to see Christ's completion. Matthew chapter 5, as Jesus is preaching his longest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he comes along in verses 17 through 20 of Matthew 5, and he says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets now, when Jesus says this, what he's referring to is the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. All right, and he says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's such an important phrase. I didn't come to do away with them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom 
of heaven. So what Jesus said here was, hey, I didn't come to do away with or to write off or to cast aside the law. I didn't come to add to it. He says, I came to fulfill it, to fulfill it, which means to complete or to see it through to the end. And Jesus himself is the ultimate fulfillment of the law. And, and so he, he says, even in his own words here, he says, we're not to relax the teaching of them. We're, we're not to relax on this, like we just to push them aside because they're very important. The Old Testament is very important. The law, the, the, the commandments are very important. So we don't want to discount them or set them aside. But it also reminds me of like those infomercials. Have you all ever watched an infomercial where they're trying to sell you some weird product and they come to this part where they say, but wait, what's the next part? There's more, right? But wait, there's more. It's like the law. It's like they're very important, very significant. But wait, there's more. There's far, far more. The, the commands drive us to or lead us to Christ, who is the fulfillment of, of all of the law. And so it goes beyond commands to Christ. He came to not do away with them, but to fulfill them. And so there's this tension in which we are to hold the law in this age. So let me, let me kind of transition here into this question of, okay, what do we do with these? How do we live in light of this truth? What do we do in 2022 with the law and the commandments and the Ten Commandments in particular? What do we do with them? There are four big thoughts that I have that I just want to share with you today to put the law and the commandments, hopefully, into some perspective. Here's the first thought. God's laws are grounded in grace and relationship. God's laws are grounded in grace and relationship. Because again, we, we tend to pit law versus grace as if there are two opposing forces when in fact they are not. God's laws are actually grounded in grace and relationship. So if you would, I'll have it on the screen, but look in your Bible as well. Exodus chapter 19. Before God ever gives these commandments, he's preparing his people for when he gives them to them. And, and he, he speaks in covenant language. Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6. He says this, you yourselves, this is what he's instructing Moses to tell the people. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. There's this really like tender language that, God is using with his people, that I, I delivered you, I, I bore you up on eagle's wings, I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, there's that word covenant, you shall be my treasured possession above, among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So, as he's instructing Moses, it's all about covenant relationship. We, we talked about this weeks ago. Covenant is an agreement between two parties. So there's this relationship here. And, and, and so he, this, this harkens back to, if you remember, we talked about covenant um, a number of weeks ago. When God came to Abraham, he established a covenant with him. And this picks up where he started that God is committed to his people. And he's, in the Ten Commandments, what he's doing is laying out some expectations for the people. But they're grounded in grace 
in a relationship. So go to the next chapter, chapter 20. When we enter into the Ten Commandments, we started in verse number three, but there's a couple verses before that that I want to read, two verses. Exodus 20, verses one and two. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, if you've been around here for a while, you've heard me talk about four questions that help us to be gospel-centered. If you've been, if you're newer here in the last six months or so, you may not have heard me use this language. There's four questions that we ask to make sure the gospel is central. It goes in this order. Who is God? What has he done? In light of who he is and what he's done, who am I? What do I do? In other words, how do I live? How do I live in light of who God is, what he's done, and who he's made me to be, the identity that he has given me? How am I to live? What do I do? And so before God ever gets to question number four, he lists 10 do's and don'ts. Before he ever gets there, he gives us this this grounding in the gospel and this grounding in grace. So question number one, who is God? Do you see it in that verse? He says, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. He speaks in royal terms. I am Jehovah God, but he also speaks in personal terms. He says, I am the Lord your God. There's this relationship there. Question number one, who is God? I am the Lord your God. Question two, what, have, what has he done? What has God done? You see what it says? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So what has God done? He's delivered us. He's delivered his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. So question three, in light of that, who are we? And this is implied here. We are no longer slaves, right? We belong to God. This this is what he's saying to his people. This is who I am. This is what I've done. This is who you are. Now, in light of that, do, do, do not, do not. This is how you are to live but it's grounded in grace and relationship. John 14, verse 15, Jesus himself said this. He said, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. If you love me. He didn't say, do this. He said, if you love me, if I have your heart, if we are in relationship, then you will obey and you will follow me. Y'all, this is why why we can look at somebody's life, and if they're not obeying the Lord, we can go, "Mm, I don't know if they know the Lord because they're not following him and obeying him. They don't love him. And so make sure you hear this this morning. Those laws were given not as a means of salvation. In other words, if you just do this and this and this or don't do this and this, you'll be right with God. You'll be okay. No, no, no. These were given to say, this is what it looks like when redeemed people live in relationship with God and with others. They won't have any other idols. They won't have any other gods. They won't steal and kill and commit adultery and covet. This is the way redeemed people live. And in fact, when you look at the Ten Commandments, I don't know if you've ever seen this, when you consider the first four, they all have to do with our vertical relationship with God. No other gods, no idols, Remember the Sabbath day, what is number three? Um, Don't take his name in vain. Those all have to do with our vertical relationship. The last six all have to do with our horizontal relationships with people, 
Honor your father and your mother. Don't steal. Don't murder. Um, don't covet. All of those cover our horizontal relationships. And so all of the commands are grounded in grace and in relationship. And I want to read a couple quotes to you. Paul Tripp said this. This is a pretty lengthy quote, but I think it's helpful for us when we understand the commandments. We tend to think of sin as the breaking of specific rules, like the Ten Commandments. In reality, it's the breaking of a relationship that results in us breaking the rules. Every sin is first an assault on God's rightful place, a betrayal of our relationship with him. That's why it was right for David, who had just violated the Ten Commandments of adultery and murder in Psalm 51 when he said, against you, Lord, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David was not minimizing the horrible offenses he committed against Bathsheba and Uriah and the people of Israel. What he was doing was confessing to breaking the first commandment first, which led to the disobedience of the rest. Is this making sense? He, he, this is a breaking of our relationship before it's ever a breaking of the rules. And so God's laws are grounded in grace and relationship. One more quote from Tim Mackey, the Bible Project, said this. God says that if Israel obeys the terms of the covenant, they will be so shaped by God's laws and teaching and justice that they will become a kingdom of priests, which means they will become God's representatives and show all the other nations what God is truly like. So God's laws are grounded in grace and relationship. Let me... Let me talk about the second thing that I want, want you to hear this morning. God's commands are not restrictions of our happiness, but expressions of his love. God's commands are not restrictions. You know, when we're kids, we think of every restriction and like we think they're so burdensome. Like our parents or our authority figures are trying to steal our happiness and steal our joy. And what we need to realize is that God's commands to us are not restrictions of our happiness, they're expressions of his love. And I think of this like, like a parent thinks of, you know, a parent with their child. And, you know, all of us have been on one or both sides of that. Like when we're younger, we don't understand why our parents like restrict some things in our lives. But as we get older, as we mature, we go, oh, that's why my parents didn't let me run around in the street. They didn't want me to die, right? It's an expression of love, the boundaries are to protect us, they're for our good. And it's the same way with, with God, that his law reveals to us his character, that he is holy, it reveals his divine standard of holiness and perfection. And as that divine standard is put out before us, it makes us realize that we fall short, that we are sinful, that we don't measure up. And what happens is it, it is intended to drive us to him is intended to drive us to Christ and the gospel. In fact, Paul said in Romans 7, verse 7, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And so the law help, helps us realize our sinfulness so that we'll go to God. His commands, they warn us, they protect us. Uh, let me read another quote from, from Paul Tripp. 
It's another long one, but I think this is so good. Why are there so many warnings in Scripture? It's because God loves us. I love this. A warning isn't judgment. Hear that again. A warning isn't judgment. If all God intended to do was to judge and condemn us, he wouldn't first warn us. He would only judge and condemn. And so one of the ways we experience the loving fatherhood of God is in his unrelenting commitment to warn us of the various dangers of life in this fallen world. Likewise, God's boundaries, that is his laws, are an expression of his love for us. They protect us from danger and draw us toward a deeper dependency and communion with him. In his word, he sets boundaries of protection for us. He does not do that to rob us of our freedom and joy, but so that we would be freed from the bondage and sadness that always result when sinners choose their own way. Uh, so, again, I think of parenting and being a child. I also think of another example is my dog, my year-and-a-half-old dog, Roman, who's a Boston Terrier. And so in, in our backyard, we have no fence up. Um, so when we let him go outside, we either have to have him on a leash or we can, we can let him roam around. Rome, get it? Roman. We let him roam some. <laughs> We let them roam a little bit, but it's like this small little area. I'm trying to wake you all up. But it's kind of a pain. And so it would be, it'd be so nice if we set up a fence. I'm kind of stubborn. I don't want to pay thousands of dollars right now to do that with the price of lumber and all that stuff. So we have no boundary. But imagine what it would be like for Roman. How good life would be if we set up a fence for him. And he could just run around freely. Like he could just do whatever he wants. Wait a second. So if we set up a fence, if we set up boundaries, he would have more freedom and happiness and joy. This is what God does for us. His restrictions, his commands aren't restrictions on our happiness. They're expressions of his love. Think guardrails and boundaries, not restrictions. Like he's taking something away from us. He's trying to keep us within the safe zone of, of his blessing and, and, and protection. He's trying to keep us from playing out in the street, y'all. He loves us. And this is why he establishes guardrails and boundaries. They're not restrictions of our happiness, but expressions of his love. Here, here's a third thing. I'm going to hit this fast. Um, and, and let me say this. Um, I'm going to expand more on this um, online. As I looked at this this morning, I had this all fleshed out, and I said, this is going to take way too long. So I'm going to do on Wednesday night probably an online session if you all want to nerd out with me and dig a little deeper into this. Um, but there's a question that comes when we talk about the commandments of God and the Old Testament. We go, okay, what am I responsible for? Like, do I have to keep all of the law or do I have to keep all the Ten Commandments? What do I do? What do I not do? There's arguments against, against the Old Testament law that, you know, when people are trying to prove their point or disprove the Bible, they would say, well, the Old Testament says that you can't eat shellfish or that you can't mix fabrics together. And so when it talks about homosexuality being a sin, like, is that even a thing? Because all these other things we've did away with, we don't 
abide by these things. So that's old, te- that's old stuff. So are, what are we responsible for? Is some of that stuff still valid or some of it are those things we can just throw out the window? What are we responsible for? Do we have to obey <clears throat> all the Old Testament laws? I'm going to dig into that a little bit on Wednesday night if you're interested in that. But let me say this, for the follower of Jesus in this day and age, if you are in Christ, you are under the law of Christ. If you are in Christ, you, so if you have a relationship also, with God, you put-